Good morning, everybody. I'm Stephen, one of the pastors here. Uh, Alethe Junior Kids, you guys are cleared to go back to your teachers in the back if you've not already done so. The rest of us, we're going to be discussing uh, Micah chapter 5, verse 2 through 5 this morning as we continue through our Advent series. Uh, as we're looking at these texts in the prophets, these prophecies about Christ, the coming Messiah, uh, as Kev's, Pastor Kevin said a few weeks ago, we're, we're looking first to describe that prophecy and what it meant to the people that it was spoken to. Second, how is that prophecy connected to Christ? Third, how do we bring a modern application from that text? So if you will, please open your Bibles to Micah chapter 5, and we'll go ahead and look at that text together. I have a simple question for you this morning. Do you have peace at Christmas? Seems to me like Christmas time is like the most hectic, the most chaotic time of year. It starts with Thanksgiving and just continues high energy straight through January 1st. Like you've got Christmas parties to go to. You've got presents to buy. You've got Christmas cards to send, Christmas pictures to send to before you to take before you send those cards. You've got family to go and visit. You've got travel. You've got traffic wherever you go. It seems like people everywhere is just out of their house on the road. If you're like me and you are a last-minute shopper, there's added stress because now there's only four days left to order something on Amazon Prime and have it arrive by Friday, if we're that lucky at all. The last thing that I generally feel around Christmas time is peace. Around the time that this prophecy was written, uh, Micah, they were having trouble finding peace too, for a little bit of a different reason. Pastor Daniel last week did an excellent job of kind of laying out the biblical timeline of the prophets for us. I'm not going to go into all of that. If you'd like, please go and watch it. He did an excellent job, and I cannot repeat all of what he said. I don't have time, and I don't want to take the time. But he laid out for us three distinct groups of prophets, the pre-exile prophets, the exile prophets, and the post-exile prophets. So where does Micah fit along that timeline? Which group does he fit into? Micah chapter 1, verse 1 says, The word of the Lord came to Micah of Morsheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. So that gives us all the information that we need to place Micah on this timeline. These kings are kings of Judah in the southern kingdom. That's where Micah was prophesying. He's about 25 miles south of Jerusalem, south-southwest of Jerusalem. Uh, and he's prophesying around the same time as the prophet Isaiah. So he is firmly in this pre-exile period. If you're going to put a date to this book, uh, most scholars would put it between 750 and 722 B.C. Um, this is right before the exile happens in the northern kingdom. Micah lays out his book as a series of lawsuits that God is bringing against 
the leaders of Israel in the north and Judah in the south, the capitals of Samaria in the north and Judah, Jerusalem of Judah. The main problem that he says that Samaria and Jerusalem have is idolatry. It's the same thing that we saw all throughout the book of Judges. They had traded their faith in the living God for man-made images of wood and stone and gold. But that wasn't the only problem, not by a long shot, because with that idolatry, they had taken several other sins with them. They had become utterly corrupt, oppressing the poor by taking away their homes and property, literally evicting someone out of their own home because I want that property. They were paying off judges who were taking bribes for favorable judges in court. These judges were literally selling their vote for the highest bidder. The priests were getting paid to proclaim that the people were satisfied and justified before God, even though the priests knew that they weren't. The prophets and preachers of the time had become no more than petty fortune tellers peddling personal prophecies for cash. And because of all of these things, Micah said that God was going to judge the people and bring Assyria and Babylon, these two superpowers of the day, to conquer and send them into exile. These two uh, kingdoms, they're massive empires with large military, uh, large militaries, chariots, horses, bows, and they vastly outnumbered the kingdom of Israel. The aggression from Assyria had actually started about 20 years prior to this period. And Assyria is encroaching upon the northern kingdom of Israel. And Micah's prophecy that they were going to be dispersed actually happened in 722 BC. He lived through it in the south, watching the kingdom of the north be destroyed, half of their population killed, and most of the rest taken off and dispersed throughout the kingdom of Assyria. That's the backdrop of Micah. That's why it is so incredible that Micah says this prophecy we're looking at this morning. This is not a prophecy that you would typically make when you're in that circumstance. It's not something you would say about your, your country when you're being attacked and taken over. Let's look at it, starting in verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, one whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. So this is an incredible statement in Micah's day. And how do we think that the people of Micah's day would have interpreted this? It's very clear 
that they would have connected this prophecy with two people. The first is King David. Uh, if you've read the Bible, read uh, the Old Testament book of First and Second Samuel and beyond, you've probably heard about King David. Most of you have heard the story of David and Goliath. Let me show you where we're kind of getting that from. David is this king who is the second king of Israel. He took over the kingship from the, his predecessor, Saul, who was the first king. Saul died in battle along with all of his sons. His dynasty ended, and God had anointed David previously to be the one to take up the kingship. David was the king who all other kings were measured by. If you read the book of Kings and Chronicles, they're continually referring back to David and whether a king did walk in the steps of his father David or did not walk in the steps of his father David. David was a, a man who was born in this town of Bethlehem. He was a shepherd. He was a warrior who secured a long period of peace for Israel. One of the longest in their history. So that's pretty clear, the connection that they would have seen between David and this prophecy. The second person that they would have connected this prophecy to is the coming son of David, the Messiah. This links back to something that God had told to King David during his kingship. The prophet Nathan at one point came to him and said this. It's recorded in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12 through 16. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come forth from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now, this passage in 2 Samuel is the very first glimpse that we get of the coming Messiah, who's to come from David's line. And our text this morning reassures this prophecy to the people of Micah's day. It's as if God is saying to the people in Micah's time, things look really bad, but I am not done with you yet. The promises that I gave to David are still valid, and I will not give up on you. Which is really, really good news for us. Because Jesus is that descendant of David. 
Jesus is that Messiah. And unlike the people in Micah's time, we don't have to look forward to a future redemption, a future Savior who is coming. We have a Savior who has come and who has redeemed us and has made us right with God and has given us peace. We also know that they would have connected it to this coming Messiah because of evidence that we see in the New Testament. The people uh, of Jesus' day, when people were saying, well, is Jesus the Christ? Is Jesus the Christ? I don't know. Uh, he came from Nazareth. And in John uh, 7, verse 42, they're talking about this. And they, he says, has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David? Comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was. So, 700 years later, in Jesus' day, they still remembered this prophecy and still connected the coming Messiah with the line of David and with the city Bethlehem. This is also shown in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. This is part of the nativity narrative. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judah, in the days of King Herod, behold, wise men from the east came, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And here they refer back to this prophecy from Micah. They misquote it a little bit, but here's what they say. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come forth a ruler who is shepherd my people Israel. To the point here is that they knew that this prophecy referred to a coming Messiah, a coming and future king who would establish a new golden age in Israel. With only one week left until Christmas, it should be impossible for us to escape that same connection. Because we all know the answer to this question. Who was born in Bethlehem? All right, we're going to try that again. Audience participation, we're not used to this. I know. Who was born in Bethlehem? Thank you. That's our connection. This one, they served me up a t-ball. I did not have to work very hard to connect this to Jesus. So how can we apply this scripture today? I think there are two big ways that we can apply this, two big things that we can learn from uh, this scripture. The first, Micah 5 shows us the significant insignificance of Bethlehem. And two, it shows us that God shepherds his people. Let's deal with the first one first. The significant insignificance of Bethlehem. I could not think of another way to say it. 
But here's the question. Why did God choose Bethlehem to be the birthplace of the Savior? He could have chosen anywhere on earth. As long as he's from the line of David, he would have fulfilled the Davidic covenant. So why did he choose Bethlehem? It could be to very clearly show the connection between Jesus and David. And, and I think that that answer is true and good, but I don't think that that's the right answer. When I look at Scripture, I see a pattern like all over the place. It pops up in almost every single book in the Old Testament and many of the books in the New Testament. It's this pattern where God chooses the weak and unlikely vessel to accomplish his plans. So he could have chosen anywhere, and it's likely, more likely in our minds that he would have chosen somewhere like Jerusalem, which was a massive city next to Bethlehem, or Rome, which was the biggest city in Jesus' day, or Assyria, or Babylon, but he didn't. He chose Bethlehem, which was this little farming village down south of Jerusalem. In fact, the name Bethlehem itself means house of bread. It's Bethlehem, house of bread. That, that second word that's hard to pronounce, Ephratha, uh, refers more to the region around Bethlehem. It, it means fruitful. So we have this, this fruitful house of bread. And there's a reason why David himself did not establish his capital in Bethlehem. It's a little town. Like, it's not Gainesville, even. It's Archer. Most of you, like, this is your first time hearing that Archer Road isn't just the name of a road. Like, there's actually a town called Archer. You go down there, you hit a stoplight, and you're gone. You're past it. It's very small, and there's nothing wrong with Archer. It's a great little town. But, but here's the point. You don't expect someone significant to, to come out of Archer. You expect the president of the United States to be born in a big city, somewhere influential and political like Chicago or like Austin, Texas or New York City. You don't expect Archer. God chooses these weak and unlikely vessels to accomplish his plans. I mean, we saw it when we studied the book of Judges. The story of Gideon very clearly demonstrates this. Gideon was the weakest man in the weakest family in the smallest town in his clan. And God chose this guy, who was fairly cowardly at first, and chose him and called him to redeem Israel at the time and drive out the invaders who were oppressing them. So Gideon sends out the call to drive out the invaders. 10,000 guys show up. Yeah, Gideon's got to be feeling pretty good about himself for that. 10,000 warriors show up. God says, send them all home. Sends all but 300 of them home. And these 300 are like the most unsoldierly of the lot. They're the guys that like, you know, instead of like getting water and drinking it so you can kind of keep a lookout, they just got down and drank like a dog. 
on all fours. Like the most unsoldierly of the lot. And they didn't even fight the invaders. God had them surround the camp and smash a bunch of pots together. And then God caused the invaders to flee. He chooses these unlikely vessels. He chose King David, the youngest and smallest of his brothers. He was so insignificant that when David, uh, when, when the prophet Samuel came to anoint the new future king in Israel, uh, he went to Jesse's house, David's dad, and said, bring out your sons. And he left David out in the field. God also chose David to go and fight the giant Goliath. And King Saul is like, okay, I'll send you out to fight Goliath. He, he puts this armor on him and gives him a sword and a spear and a shield. And David's like, I can't even move. He throws it all off, takes it, goes and kills the giant with a slingshot. God chose Joseph, who's the youngest brother. Chose um, Paul to be an apostle who was the most unlikely convert to Christianity. This is the guy who was opposing Christianity, going out, rounding up Christians, and killing them. But God chose him and used him to plant churches all throughout Asia Minor and Greece, to write letters that we still learn from today, that are scripture and God inspired him. And I think Paul was used by God to unpack the answer for this question this morning. He, said, he wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. Because to us, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. I thank God that he does this. Choosing the unlikely vessels, choosing the weak and broken vessels because he chose me and he chose you. He redeemed me. He healed me. And he has adopted us as his own sons and daughters bought with the blood of Christ and redeemed to himself. That's the significance of the unlikely Bethlehem. But God doesn't just redeem us to himself and leave us there. God also shepherds his people. We see that in Micah 5, chapter 4, that he stands and shepherds his flock Psalm 23 gives us a beautiful picture of what this good and godly shepherd looks like. I had the opportunity over the summer to preach a whole sermon on 
that psalm, and I would encourage you to go and, uh, and watch or listen to that uh, if you want a more full unpacking, but here's the short version. When God is your shepherd, he will lead you to green pastures and still waters. God shepherds us through the word of God and through the work of the Holy Spirit. Let's look at Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lay down in green pastures, and he leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me on paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So how does God shepherd his people? The first way, through the word of God the Bible, the scriptures. And with the scriptures, he feeds us. When we read the scriptures, we sit in them, we ponder it, we memorize it. He illuminates the things in our minds through the work of the Holy Spirit in us. We have to read the scriptures the right way. There is a wrong way to read the scriptures. We don't use it like a magic eight ball. Anybody from the 90s know what that is? You know, it's, just, it's, a, it's an eight ball. It looks like an eight ball on top. It's a little circle on the bottom with like a little triangle with answers on it. And you go, should I date this girl? Try again later. Should I move to Orlando? And Judas Iscariot went and hanged himself in the potter's field. <laughs> just flipping through the Bible for answers is not the right way to read it. We've got to read the whole scripture. We can't take bits and pieces of it and things that we don't like or don't understand and throw it out. Things that we don't agree with and just ignore it. No, we have to take those things. We have to wrestle with those things in our minds. We have to try to understand those things in our minds and try to apply that to our life because this is the word of God. And the more we do that, the more we get in the scriptures and read it and let it fill our minds, the more like Jesus we will start to look. When you take the gospel and put it into situations in your life, you will start to look more like Jesus. And that's part of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. That's the second way he shepherds us, the work of the Holy Spirit. Micah 5.4 also says he stands and shepherds his flock in the power of God. Psalm 23 says that he is with us in the valley where death hangs over us like a shadow. And what I want you to notice about that passage, that verse, is that it's first, it's not a question of if you will walk through this valleys 
where death hangs over you like a shadow. It's even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Why? In Psalm 23, he goes from describing things about God. The Lord is my shepherd. He leads me in green pastures. He makes me lay down by still waters. He takes it from that to you. He says in verse 4, you are with me. Your rod, your staff comfort me. He is with us and he is personal. The very last thing that Jesus said to his disciples before he ascended into heaven was, behold, I will be with you always to the end of the age. And he is with us through the power of the, in the person of the Holy Spirit. We don't have to wonder where he's at. He is right here right now, in whatever you're going through. He is right here. And that gives me peace. This peace that Micah talks about in verse 5 of chapter 5. He will be our peace. Is he? your peace this Christmas? Is he your peace when you're stressed out of your mind because you can't get everything done in the day? Because there's more things to do than I can get done in the 24-hour period that I have to do it. I pray that Jesus would be your peace this Christmas. I pray that you would look to him for your peace when things at work are just chaos and people have left the workforce, gone to seek other jobs, and you're sitting there in your office with three times the amount of work you had last year trying to get it all done before the end of the year. Because let's face it, around the holidays, we've all got time off and people go on vacation. And there's nothing wrong with that. But the same amount of work still has to get done. And it's hard. Let Jesus be your peace. Go ahead and invite the band back up for us as I conclude. We prepare for communion. I've got this challenge for you. If you forget everything else I said in this message, I want you to remember that Jesus gives you peace. I want you to remember that he is your peace. When you're going through your preparations this week before Christmas, your last minute shopping, you're fighting traffic to get into a parking space at the mall, you're wrapping gifts at the last minute on Christmas Eve, that you would remember that Jesus is your peace. If you guys are here this morning and you're not a believer and you were brought by somebody or you're, you're visiting 
or you've been in church your whole life and you don't really understand, I would invite you to come and talk to me or Pastor Theo or the person that you trust about what this all means, about who this Jesus is and what he really did. I want you to place your assurance, whether you're a Christian or not, in Jesus. Because he is the baby prophesied in Micah 5.